Nehemiah chapter 2. I want to talk to you about the first steps are the best. First steps are the best. I could have titled this anything. There's any number of directions to go with this chapter. But subtitle is what when believers get a vision, like a, like a little baby, like a little child learning to take their first steps. I want to tell you about how to take some steps this morning toward rebuilding, towards fixing some broken things. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 2 and um, in verse 4. Nehemiah chapter 2. I said verse 20, but look at verse 4. Then the king said unto me, this is Nehemiah writing in his journal, he said, Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the Lord of heaven. All of a sudden, a door opens for Nehemiah to act and to do something impossible. All right? Now, let me take you through uh, some thoughts here. Most people are quite content with how they live right now. I'm surprised because I, you know, you wonder, do they even, do they really like being the way they are? But as some people have always said, when in Rome, you do as the Romans do, right? So if everybody else is living a certain way, I guess it's normal for me to live that way too. And yet, most people don't know that they're living out of the will of God. Thank you, sir. They're living away from God, and they're living ruined lives. God didn't save you, didn't, didn't create you even, for you to live a life of ruin. But sometimes there are some individuals who see more than what everybody else is living, and they see themselves as a mess. You know, when you finally get tired of yourself, you're on the right road. Right? Now, I know a lot of people who claim to be tired of themselves, but they don't really want to get out of where they're at. But if you are going to start to live differently than you're used to living, it'll mean you'll have to take a step in a direction you've never gone before. And it may be a baby step. It may be a big leap. I don't know. All I know is you need to be able to take the first step. And by the way, the first step is the best step. And that step often will seem as if it's straight off a cliff. Somebody once said, I'd rather the devil I know than the devil I don't know. You ever hear that phrase? So they just keep living with their problems and with the, uh, a broken life, broken home. They just live with that because they're terrified of maybe worse situation. And um, let me tell you, there is a third option. Don't just think that there's just the devil I know and the devil I don't know. There's a third option, and that's the Lord you know and trusting Him. Stepping out in obedient faith, knowing that God works all things together for, for good, simply because God will help you, not because you know what you're doing. Now, Nehemiah wants to rebuild what sin had ruined, and I want you to have that same heart this morning. Nehemiah wanted to rebuild what sin had ruined, but he needed the people to want to rebuild. He couldn't go and take the, the, the rubbish and, and take it out of the city and then go back in and start rebuilding by himself. If he's going to do anything, he needed the people to want to rebuild as well. And that's where we pick up Nehemiah in chapter 2. Uh, going back to chapter 1, let me just tell you a little bit about the history of Nehemiah, verses 1 to 4. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. 
It came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace. So he's working in the palace, working for the king. Verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brethren, is actually one of his own brothers, came. He and certain men of Judah they traveled a thousand kilometers. And they'd come back, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept. It affected him, and he mourned certain days, and fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. Go to chapter 2, now verse 4. We started with this verse, then the king sent unto me, because he noticed that Nehemiah was upset, and he said, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant, speaking of himself, if I have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me, send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. So, if you know a little bit, Jerusalem is in ruin in Nehemiah's day. It had been surrounded and destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, I know, B.C., all of these dates in history, but they mean something when you try to put together whether the Bible's true or not, whether, there's, uh, whether it's historically accurate, whether it is scientifically accurate, everything about it. So there are certain things that are verified that just go, wow, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is all accurate and true. It's the Word of God. But in 606 B.C., it was surrounded and destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. No stone of the wall was left standing. All the wealth and all the money, all the tools were taken away to far away Babylon. And it was God's judgment. It wasn't just a, uh, a random event in history. This was God's judgment. God had warned Israel for hundreds of, and, and, and hundreds and hundreds of years by prophets saying, God's going to take away everything that he's given you if you don't get right. And they didn't. So away they went into, into captivity. Seventy years later, two very important people, a guy named Zerubbabel, and then another man, Ezra, and you've got the Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, Esther uh, in your Bible, but they head up the rebuilding of the temple seventy years later after the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, now, <clears throat> when they were there, they faced delay after delay, and obstacle after obstacle. The people got very discouraged, and, and even though they had the temple, worship became hard. You know, you may come to church, and let me be real practical. You may pick up your Bible, but it just doesn't thrill you. It doesn't speak to you. That's because something's broken still. Because there's, there's something still um, hurting, something that's still holding you back from just praising God. Now, the sacrifice of praise, you can do. You can sacrifice your, your hurt and say, I praise you anyway, but that is hard. Would you agree? So the people found it hard to, to get back into worship because things they were still surrounded by so much ruin. So many of the Jews were content, and they had come. Here's, this is 160 years later after the destruction, and Nehemiah finds out 160 years later after Jerusalem had been destroyed, even though the temple's been rebuilt, Nehemiah finds out the people lived in, in rubbish they lived on top of rubble. Their houses and little huts and little, little tents 
were, were, were in the midst of ruin, and they weren't, they weren't getting on. They were, they were living defeated lives. And they were content living that way, which upset him. They were constantly being robbed of their crops and all their hard labors because they would raise their crops only for some marauders to come through and take, uh, take away their harvest. They were mocked and bullied by the surrounding nations. They never had any hope of ever being a free nation again. And they settled that this was the kind of life they would ever have. So somebody had to take the lead. And Nehemiah had to act. <clears throat> it was kind of like first responders. I don't know, uh, you have great respect for what have recently become called first responders. But these are the people who, when, when, when a disaster occurs, they just, without hesitation, they just act. They're, they're the, the nurses, the doctors, the guarda, the paramedics, the firefighters. You and I are running away, and they're running to the disaster. Those, aren't you glad for those kind of people? <clears throat> Someone had to act. Somebody had to, to self-sacrifice. Jesus called it denying yourself. I mean, it takes great, we call it professionalism, but great self-denial to go into a burning building. Amen? to go and get somebody. But you know, if you're ever going to act, if you're ever going to save your home, you're ever going to save your marriage, you're ever going to save your, 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 your children, your teenagers, you're ever going to save, you're going to have to take whatever it costs you and pay it. Rarely are we willing to do that. These people were. There was a man named Nehemiah. He said, I'll, I'll act. Nehemiah took the lead. He had an absolute call from the Lord, and the Lord called him by the need. Nehemiah didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, I want to go visit Jerusalem. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you know what, I think I'd like to go and help out. No, when he heard of the need, when he saw the sadness in the eyes of his brother for the people that were back in his home country now, Nehemiah, if you remember, he lived, he lived in Shushan, the palace. He had a cushy job. He had one of the best jobs you could have, except for being a poison checker, <laughs> wine taster to make sure the king wasn't poisoned. But other than that, everything else of his life was on the pillow. It was just plush. It was lush. It was wonderful. And yet, when he heard of the need of, of, a, of, of the city to be rebuilt, he sensed the call of God by the need. He sensed the call by hearing of, of people who needed hope and he needed, needed a leader. They needed to be restored. He was willing to take that lead. So he made a plan. He made a plan. He worked through that plan. And by the way, he knew it was going to be hard work. He surrounded himself with people that would help him. And let me tell you this, surround your people, surround your life with godly people, folks. If you ever want to make it in, in trying to help your, your kids or help your, uh, uh, your marriage or help your, your, um, your own sanity, surround yourself with good people. Because if you keep hanging around with the deadbeats that you're used to hanging around with, you're going to self-destruct. You've got to have godly people, people you know are praying for you, people you know don't, don't care what you're going through. They care about you. You need to surround yourself with those kind of people. And say, well, there aren't that many people. I know. 
Nehemiah didn't have a lot of people he could surround himself with, but when he goes to Jerusalem, he carries great helpers with him. That's what it means to take the lead and have a track record. Nehemiah had, when he took the lead, he wasn't just signing up for a big job with no experience. He had an experience of getting answered prayer. He had experience of having God's hand on his life. You know, if you're ever going to help your wife, your ladies, you're going to help your husband get right, if you're ever going to help your teens, your kids uh, serve God and love God, if you're ever going to help uh, a ministry do anything that is next to impossible, you're going to have to learn to pray and get answers to prayer. You're going to have to walk with God yourself. It's not the ministry. It's the walk of God that does the ministry. But anyway, Nehemiah had that. So Nehemiah heads off to Jerusalem to rebuild those walls and those gates around Jerusalem, and he wants to rebuild it one brick at a time. Let me talk to you. Take him to steps, and this was an exciting day for Nehemiah. It's not always going to be this way, but I want to talk about the exciting steps Nehemiah took to rebuild Jerusalem. Father, we're, we're looking at a book that's talking about construction, and about rebuilding, and about bricks, and mortar, and, and rubble, and trash, and, and, and ruin, and, and um, uh, opponents, and obstacles. And Lord, this is not in the Bible for us to learn how to build a house. This is in the Bible to show us what's involved with building a life, with building a home, in rebuilding a home. Lord, it's very convicting because there's a lot that a lot of us have never done, and we need to do it. I pray, God, we would have the courage to to ourselves, not look around and see anybody else that ought to be doing anything, but we should look at ourselves and say, Lord, I need to I need to put my hands to work. I need to put my praying to work. I need to put my life to work, rebuilding instead of tearing down. I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution now because of Jesus. Because he stepped into my life and rebuilt my broken life. Forgive me, Lord, for not now joining in that work. So Lord, please uh, meet with us this morning. Help me to say what you would say if you were here. And speak to somebody's heart about taking the steps necessary to save their home. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I say home because that's where most of our failures are, amen? I mean, you can work for a boss and get fired and get another job, amen? But the home, that's a hard thing. So Nehemiah, we're going to apply this to home, to sanity, to to life. We're going to apply it to at least a dozen things, but I want you to see some things here. First of all, look at chapter chapter 2, verse 9. We'll pick up where we left off last week. And he has left Shushan and gone a thousand miles and gone to Judah. Verse 9, then, and notice these words, I came. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave to them the king's letter of authority. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Now just on that thought, I just want to focus on the fact that he came. And that's a great thing. Honestly, he had traveled a thousand kilometers from Shushan in Persia, Persia, all the way to the rubble and the ruin of Jerusalem. And that wasn't just a straight walk. This is, this is no man's land. This is Saudi Arabia. There's nothing there except oil now. And so he had to travel... A thousand kilometers from Shushan the palace 
in, in um, Persia all the way over to Jerusalem. Normally, we go on long trips for a holiday. Uh, and uh, you may travel a long distance to get a new, exciting, well-paying job. It's not very often you go where you have to start over completely from scratch. And that's what he's doing. He's going and he's starting at zero. It's kind of like becoming a church planning missionary where you just go somewhere and you just start from zero. Maybe starting a new ministry. I mean, everything I try to do, sometimes I've got nothing except a vision of, let's see what happens. Um, that's what he did. And it was a big accomplishment for Nehemiah. You know, you may not think about it, but one of these days, I look at some of these teenagers, I look at some of these 14, 15 years old, you know, when, when mom and dad are bringing you to church, ladies and gentlemen, that's a great thing, and they ought to drag you to church. I was drugged when I was a kid. Actually, that's not true. But there's, it's been said that uh, people who grew up in church, I was dragged to church, and that's true. When I was a kid, my dad and mom, whenever we went, which was kind of rare, you know, we're going to go into church? Okay, you know, it's kind of like, it wasn't of my own free volition is my point. You know, there comes a time where you get your own car, it's time for you to get to church. It's time, and it's, you know, one of the greatest things is when you come through that door, whether mom and dad are here or not. Amen? So here comes, here comes Nehemiah, and he came. And that's a great accomplishment, the fact that he said, you know, I know what God wants me to do, and then he does it. That could be a big thing, could be a small thing, I don't know. Just coming to church is a big deal sometimes for some people. Nehemiah, this was a great day. He had, he had given up that job as a, as a, uh, for a while and had gone all this way. He actually did it, is the point. Now, what brought him there? And I thought of five things that brought Nehemiah all that way. First of all, it was pressure. It was a God-given burden. Deep pressure inside him to do something about what was wrong in Jerusalem. And I pray that our, especially our young men, get that pressure that's internal, that's deep in their heart to say, I want to do something for God. I want to do something just for the, for the, for the boss or for, for the wife or for the kids. I don't want to do something just for myself. I don't want to do something just for the future. I want to do something for God. That's pressure. So you don't like pressure. Well, guess what? God works on the inside, and He puts that pressure on you, and sometimes you can't escape it, and that's the call of God. Pressure drove Him here. Secondly, prayer brought Him here. I believe loads of it. I believe He was a man of prayer. You'll find Him 12 times in the book of Nehemiah saying, and I prayed, and I prayed. Permission brought him there. He didn't just up and leave his, as I said last week, he got confirmation. He got supernatural permission from the king Artaxerxes to go. He got permission, which is to, to do something impossible. I mean, I mean, you got to think about it. the king must have had great respect and trust in Nehemiah. I wonder if anybody trusts us and says, you know what, I'm going to help you. I want to I help you. you. You have my blessing on what you're going to do. Then preparation. He didn't just go and see what would happen. He actually made a plan and he prepared to complete an impossible task. He prepared to finish the walls. He didn't just say, all right, I'm going to go and see what happens. He went and he had tools and he had supplies and he had uh, people and he had a plan. He knew what needed to be done and he was going to do it. And then there was one last thing that brought him all the way, and that was parting, which means he, he left. <laughs> he actually 
got out of bed and he says, you know what, I'm not going back. I'm, I'm, I'm headed off um, uh, to, to um, uh, Jerusalem and he pardoned. And, and, and uh, Nita and I, we, in, in 1994, uh, January of 1994, we, uh, it was snowing. I think we had probably two foot of snow on the ground in New Jersey. And uh, <clears throat> my pastor picked us up put us in the church van and drove us to Newark Airport. And uh, it's snowing out there. And, and as we got out of the, 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 uh, uh, the, the van, the minivan, like, like, a, like, a, like a church van, and um, we, we, we had all of these bags. I mean, I'm embarrassed. I wish we had a photo of all. We had four kids in tow now at that time. So little Joshua was three months old. <clears throat> and... Um, uh, we we had so many bags. It was when when, they, when we got up there. I said I'm gonna have to pay somebody twenty dollars in order to get them to carry these things in for us. But we we arrived there. We're going through all of the passports. We're going everything. And then at one point we had to turn around to my pastor and his, I think his wife was with us. That's, I can't remember. It was a long time ago, twenty four years ago. But I remember we had to say this is it. And then we went through the gate and then we sat there all our kids and. And uh, we're waiting for the call to get on the plane. We got on the plane. We looked outside and we said, this may be the last time we see America. But we had everything but hope in us. We looked, we, we parted. We made, we made a break. There are so many things that hold us back. And sometimes you're going to have to say, no, I got to go forward. If you're going to answer God's call in your life, it's going to cost you some friendships. It's going to cost you some some career plans, whatever it is, here the great step that Nehemiah took was accomplished. He, he got there. That may not be much for you, but I remember accomplishing something when we arrived into Ireland and it was still cold. <sighs> January 14th, it wasn't snowing, but I, we thought, you know, anyway, we thought it was going to be warmer anyway. Pardon now he's protected the whole way. Uh, if you notice verse 9, the end of it, it says, Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Now that's really cool because Nehemiah had asked for protection. I think we have a day and age, Brother Dan, where you know you, you go on a long trip and the last thing on your mind is needing to pray and say, Lord, protect us. Lord, get us, get us somewhere safely. You know, Nehemiah wasn't so arrogant thinking he didn't need protection. He says, you know, we're traveling a lot of miles. We got a lot of money with us. We, we need protection. The king said, let me send an army with you. That's cool. Did you know it's very good to ask and have God's protection? Wouldn't you like it on your kids? Wouldn't you beg God and say, God, I'm going to sleep tonight. Would you stand watch over my children? My wife's working late tonight. I have to go to sleep. Would you watch over her? That's a good thing, amen. You know, uh, uh, it's good to ask for protection over your journeys, over all of your family by name, over your choice. Lord, keep me from making a stupid decision. Hold me back. Slap me if you need to. Don't let me make wrong decisions. Over your weakness. Wouldn't you like the Lord to be your strength instead of your own flesh? Because if you, if, if you give into your flesh, you may regret it for the rest of your life. He was protected the whole way. Now, when he arrives in verse 10, he upsets the enemy. 
Look at verse 10. The Bible says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that they were come a man, there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Just the coming of Nehemiah grieved the enemy. And I thought that was really cool. The very fact that Nehemiah was there with authority from the king upset, grieved the enemy. They knew something was, was up. So who's this guy? What? He came from the king. He's got authority to be here. I wonder what's going to happen. You know, oh, that our lives and our plans upset the enemy. Don't you hate it when the devil upsets you? Don't you hate it when the devil can pull the rug out from under you and ruin your day? Wouldn't you like to ruin his day? Wouldn't you like to just thwart his plans? Well, Nehemiah, just him showing up, upset the devil's crowd. Amen. You know, when you got up and you got away from your pillow and you got ready for church and you grabbed your Bible, you got in the car and you got to church, you upset the devil. Amen. Amen. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal when the enemy gets upset. God's people. Amen. Amen. Let's hope that we upset the devil. Let's hope when we do our, our whale through the uh, through uh, Balancholy here that some people get upset. What's a whale doing? <laughs> Amen. That, that, that Bible group. Amen. Yeah. I'd rather the Bible group than the queers. Amen. Our lives and our plans need to upset the enemy. We don't upset the devil because we're no threat to him. Normally. Doesn't that upset you? Just the fact you read your Bible ought to terrify him. Just the fact you get on your knees and you begin to pray and you begin to plead for God's help and you pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit so that you can do right, so that you can be a light and be salt in the earth. The devil ought to say, Whoo, I quit! <laughs> Who was the enemy? Who were these guys? Well, there are just two of them at this point. There's this guy named Sanballat the Horonite. He was a Moabite. Another guy named Tobiah, his servant, sort of his second in command, an Ammonite. These two guys, these two guys, where's Kathy when I need her? These two guys, they're like the mafia, all right? They, they sort of controlled the, the, the territory, you know? Since this is our neighborhood, well, you're not going to mess with the Godfather. So, uh, you know, you got to work out a deal, you know? So these two guys were like mafia leaders. They kept the neighborhood. They kept everybody under their foot. They kept them in poverty. They kept them living in ruin. And doesn't the devil do that? Doesn't the devil come along and your kids, your family, especially the ones that are unsaved, you watch the devil just keep them underfoot. Don't, doesn't that upset you? I mean, when somebody's battling with addiction, you're watching the devil like a mafia boss, feeding it to them, keeping them under them under him. want to make us angry. These mafia leaders here, they hated everything about the Jews. They hated anything that worked towards their happiness and towards their blessing. And these guys are going to show up again and again. They just don't go away. But I just, God introduces us to them in verse 10. And they were upset that somebody sought the welfare of the children of Israel. By the way, you ought to pray for the peace of Israel and peace of Jerusalem because the Bible says that upsets the devil. So here comes, look at verse 11 now. Nehemiah does a silent survey. Verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. I arose in the night. Some men with me, some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God 
had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon. So we don't know if it's a mule or a horse, but he's riding on this animal. Verse 13, I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went unto the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, and there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. So then I went up in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall, and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned. So now this is a person's reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem. So when, when there are actually lots of different walls that were, that were in need of being repaired, but its primary was the central walls that went around the city. Now none of these walls were there. So he starts over here. There's a little gate here called the, 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 the fountain gate. And he's somehow somewhere in here. He heads out the fountain gate and he goes around, across the brook, there's a, there's a place called the Dragon's Well, which was basically a fountain that, you know, you ever seen these fountains where the water spits out of the mouth, you know? So it looked like a dragon. Uh, and uh, and, and he, he crossed over the brook, went by the pool, came around, got up on some height somewhere, and was able to see all of those walls. He's not trying to attract attention. He's trying to get a view of everything that was going to be involved in repairing the city. It's one thing to make a plan. another one thing to have a theory. It's another thing to actually look at the job and say, this is going to be a lot of work. And that's all he saw. <clears throat> that's all he saw was just nothing but darkness and rubble. Sometimes you need to take a step back and look at the world. You need to go to Mahan Point and lean over the ledge of that first floor. And you look out over 10,000 people crossing underneath you and just realize just how dark they are. Rubble life. Hey, they're running around. Those girls are, are dolled up. Um, uh, the makeup's falling off their face. And uh, the hair coloring and the rings and the tattoos and the money and the, the, uh, the clothes. But their lives are rubble. It's a nightmare. Now, you're not sitting there judging them. You just know because you were there. Assad. All he could see was rubble. And darkness, which is a good thing. I think he did a lot of praying while he's going three nights, man. You do a lot of praying. Not much talking, just looking and praying. God, give me wisdom. God, I don't know. Am I, are you sure you got the right guy? I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, I want to. Lord, help me. That brings me to a very important thought. I found... Now... Nehemiah is doing a lot of praying. Me and Nehemiah is doing a lot of, of preparing. But the majority of Christians don't think they need to pray. The majority of Christians in this room are expecting me to pray. Pastor, you better have prayed before you preach. So when I fail you, who are you going to blame? Oh, I'm going to blame you, Pastor. Really? You know, we, we, we live in an age where if things don't go well and the company fires you because profits aren't going well, or your husband or your wife falls into sin, when your parents let you down, you'll find yourself so angry. You know why? Because you're trusting in them. Because you're expecting them to do right. Because you're hoping that they're right with God and that they're doing everything right and that they don't mess up. Let me tell you this. 
You need to pray just as much as Nehemiah is praying. You need to walk with God just as much as Nehemiah is walking with God. Because we got too many bitter Christians who are giving up on God because when they see things go wrong, they're expecting people when they should be trusting in the Lord. So these men are with, with Nehemiah, and I believe Nehemiah feels the burden of, these people are expecting me to do something. These, these few men that I'm with are expecting me to know what to say. They expect me to know what to do. Well, you know what I would expect of those men going with Nehemiah? I would have expected them to, God, help Nehemiah. God, I'm not called particularly to do this job, but I know you've called me to help him do this job. Never, ever, ever leave it to the pastor to pray for Sunday morning. Never, ever leave it to the pastor's wife to be the only one that encourages your pastor. Never, ever leave it to where you think that this, this church and your home and our teens are all on people. It's on the Lord, and we've got, I pray for our teens. I pray for the parents of our teens. I pray for the young people who are looking for wives and for husbands. I pray for you because I doubt you pray. Can I be that honest? But if, if things don't work out, don't you get mad at me because I didn't pray hard enough. You can greet yourself and go, you know what, I need, I need to be one who, like Nehemiah, I need to be alongside and say, I'm going to pray for Nehemiah because he's trying to do right. I'm going to pray for my mom and dad because they're trying to do right. I'm going to pray for my husband because I know he wants to do right. I'm going to pray for my wife because I believe with all my heart she wants to do right. And I need to be there to help her do right. Amen. Like I said, this stuff just blends with the home. So he makes a call to rebuild. Look there in um, verse 16. The rulers knew not whither I went and what I did, neither had I as yet told any of the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work, ultimately. He says, I didn't tell anybody except these few men that are with him. Then verse 17 says, Then said I unto them, then came the day. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in now. By the way, he put the we. Guess where he's living now? With them. He, does, he found a little hut or whatever, and he's living it. He's going, this stinks. <laughs> this is not where I want to live out the rest of my life. He says, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we may be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. We'll come back to this in a minute. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Then came the day. He waited for the right time. And at this point, believe me, there's no turning back. When he announces his vision, Nehemiah Pilate found himself standing on some bit of rubble there. He gathered a, as many of the people that were around, and he called out to everybody. And uh, this was a call to God's people. It was not a call over the Internet and over Facebook and over, over the news channels. He called to the people that were in God's uh, city, um, to God's people, that window is open. I see women freezing, and I, I, know, I know I'll hear of it later. Anyway, 
He calls out to God's people. And he calls out to all of God's people. You know, it, there's, there's, there's something about making a call to the people who are within earshot. And I, I wish I could call, I wish I could, you know, make a TV broadcast to all the Christians of the world. Not going to happen. But I'm going to talk to you. And I'm going to talk to all of you, not just to the wealthy, not to the smart, not to the talented, but to all of God's people to do your part, to rise up and let's build. There were no exceptions. It wasn't like, oh, I know, you're, you're, you, we'll let you off. No. For all of them. Because what he says is this. He says, would you open your eyes? Don't you see where you're living? Now, this is going to be really painful. <laughs> because what he's doing is he's now crossing a line and he's saying, guys, aren't you tired of living in the rubble? Aren't you tired? Isn't that what you, listen, if you've ever, ever had the desire, let me tell you, please come to 12 Weeks to Freedom. Come and sit down there and look at an addict. And you know what you'd want to say? You'd say, why do you want to live this way? Can't say it. But you look at me and go, why are you doing this? There's old Nehemiah saying, aren't you tired of living in this disaster of a, of a city? Open your eyes and see just how low you're living. There was nobody that wasn't living a ruined life in that rubble. They had gotten used to living that way. They were blind to it. They had closed their eyes and gotten just gotten used to the piles of rubble and the ruin around them. By the way, most families are so used to the arguing and the fighting going on in the home, they can't imagine what a marriage would look like without it. Amen. Most parents are so used to their children and teenagers telling them what they're going to do that they couldn't imagine ever being in charge of their home. Don't get quiet. Most addicts are so used to the lying, the stealing, the, the needles, the constant drowsiness, they, they can't remember a time where they were clean and actually happy. They're just used to it. You know, Nehemiah says, aren't you tired of it? Don't you see? Did you see those words? He says, verse 17, ye see the distress that we're in, don't you? Can't you just see just how ruined our city is? You know what the job of the pastor is? To open your eyes. Sometimes I may have to agitate you for you to go around going, you know, you're right. And then he's trying to get them to hate the rubble. Now that's real repentance. Real repentance is where you're actually sick of something. And somebody who ever get, picks up a bottle and starts to drink and thinks there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol or taking prescription pills without end. Somebody who sits there and, and, and stays up late night skimming the channels or getting onto the internet, going to wicked sites and they're used to it. You know what this pastor prays? That you get sick of it. That it just turns your stomach. That you just... that. The Bible says this, the bread of deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth shall be filled with gravel. I love that. You start lying to everybody at the end of the day, it just tastes like your mouth is full of gravel. That's good. Somebody who's stuck in sin and they're going on their way and they don't seem to be bothered, you and I pray for a hedge of thorns around them. For them to find themselves trapped and hurting and at the bottom somewhere. Amen. <clears throat> you need to detest any sin that you're, that you're toying with. A cigarette in your hand, porn on your phone, a pill in your mouth, 
or a bottle in your cabinet, you need to be able to open that thing going, I don't even want to look at it. I'm, I'm sick. I just, I just get sick of thinking about drinking that anymore. Amen. You need to make a choice to rise above the rubble, to want to be more than just a survivor. You know what the Bible calls us? More than conquerors. I'm not a survivor. Talk about cancer survivors. They talk about survivors on TV. You know, they drop them off on an island and stuff. I want to be more than a survivor. I want to actually conquer some things and have the victory in my life. To be more. To do a good work. He's calling them to do. He says, verse 18, he says, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. This is Nehemiah talking. Now they respond and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. And I thought of this. So no, I, 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 there's so much New Testament in this. But Philippians 1.6, my life verse says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it. So Jesus is like Nehemiah. He did a great work and he's doing a great work in me. And if I ever get a chance to have a good work in somebody else's life, I want it. So it was a challenge to build again what sin had ruined. He's now in motion. Now, you already have heard the response, but verse 18, the end of it, it says, And they said, and it was just six words, Let us rise up and build. Without the resolve, without the decision to fulfill those six words, nothing will ever be done for God. If you just want God to come and rescue you, if you want God to always get you out of debt, if you want God to always get you out of the gutter, if you always want God to send somebody to pick you up and encourage you, let me tell you this, nothing's going to happen if you just sit there. But if you say, I want to get out of this. Now, you may not be able to get out of that. You may be absolutely stuck in the mire, in the muck of your sin, and you're doomed, but at least you ought to want to be free. Amen? Let's get out of this. Let us rise up. Let's rebuild. And I like how it says, they said. It wasn't just one guy going, I'll do it. No, it's like, it like they all joined in at one time. Spoke at once. It was a very public decision. I believe that's unity. They all had the same desire. They all had the same commitment. They made sure they were loud enough so the enemies could hear them. Amen. That's how come I like to encourage you guys to sing on a Sunday morning. When we meet on Sunday night, even on Wednesday night, we sing. And I love having the windows open so people passing by can hear us singing. Because it ought to, it ought to be apparent that God's people are here. We're not hiding. We're not, we're not cowering. No, we're shouting the victory. And a good response. And I like how it says they strengthen their hands, which means they encourage one another. You ever, you ever uh, been, been in... Um, uh, a tug of war, you know, and there's there's 15 guys on that side, and there's just you on this side, and you turn, you're gonna be you're gonna be slaughtered, and then another 10 big guys come up behind you, and they strengthen your hand. Your hand is no longer the only one pulling that rope, and it's good when we all work together. Many hands make light work, and they became as one man. They became unified. I think they're. I think it's a. It's the. It's the, the empowerment of a, of a church there in Jerusalem. They hadn't had joy. They hadn't had fun. They hadn't had victory in so long. And now they're like, let's do it. It was a great day. 
I think it spread throughout the whole city. It's been a very long time, as I said, since joy had been heard in the streets of Jerusalem. And it may be the same in your home, maybe even your heart. You know, it's easy to get excited. It's easy to take, and the, and the first step is always the greatest. When you, when you make that step, remember when you asked some of you guys, let's go way back 200 years ago, when you asked your bride, your, your, your girlfriend, to be your bride. And uh, it wasn't 200 years ago, I know. 108, I know exactly. Anyway, remember you, you made that, I don't know, did you hum and haw for weeks and worry about what you're going to say? But when you finally took that step, he says, will you be my wife? Will you marry me? Or maybe she asked you. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> the point being, I always don't know what's going to happen. But the point being, there's so it's so exciting when you take that step. Amen? This was such an exciting step. They're like, we've got for the first time in 160 years, we have hope. It's easy to get a vision, easy to get excited. It's much harder to stay excited. Would you agree? See, they're going to discover this. They're going to discover that it's going to be hard work. But you know what Jesus, when he called his disciples, he says, follow me. No matter the cost. By the way, by the way, um, the work that they were signing up for, I think it's going to be the, the hardest work they ever did. And if you're going to ever fix anything in your life, Spiritually speaking, things that matter, not just, not just fixing a roof or fixing the, 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 uh, uh, the, the um, I'm trying to think of what's in the car. I was going to say carburetors. There's no carburetors in cars anymore. But anyway, the fuel injector, whatever. Whatever it takes to fix that matters is infinitely more complex and harder than fixing the car or fixing the house. By the way, there was a storm brewing out on the horizon. Look at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, ah, now they got a larger number, and Geshem the Arabian, <laughs> when they heard it, they laughed at us to scorn, they despised it and said, what is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Now, there was growing opposition. They're, they have a new guy with them, and this thing's only going to grow. It was a powerful opposition, like I said. These weren't just idle threats. This enemy was very, very powerful. They had been in power for 160 years. They're like, they're like demonic forces in people's minds and in their hearts. Uh, you may not believe in, in the devil working, but you've got your eyes closed because the devil has a grip on 99% of the minds and hearts of this planet. And when you show up and you say, you know what, I'm going to try to save my teenage son from the sin that he's getting into. I'm going to try to save my marriage. I'm going to try to save a, um, uh, my, my testimony that I've ruined over and over. I'm going to rebuild my testimony so people can see Christ in me. Whatever you try and rebuild, the devil's going to show up and laugh and mock and try to stop you. And believe me, he can. Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a, as a roaring lion, Seeking who he may devour, and he can. You see, these were bullies of the worst sort. They're not going to walk away. They're going to put up a, a fight throughout this entire book. You know, when Jesus would, would come upon somebody who was demon-possessed, and he would rebuke the devil, it, it usually would say, and the devil tear him, which means thrashed him. I mean, he wasn't coming out without a fight. 
And so when you set out to try to make a change in your life, in your, in your thinking, in your testimony, in, in your home, believe me, the devil's going to come out of the woodwork and it's gonna, all hell is going to break loose, as they say. Because these are bullies. They just don't back down. And they only, they just began their mockery. They hated everything about Nehemiah. They laughed at Nehemiah and this small crowd of excited believers. This was not 10,000 people. I hope in, in a few weeks when we're up, at, uh, uh, up in Dublin for the March for Life, I hope that there are 100,000 people there. Amen. But it won't be big enough. The world will still laugh. Oh, there are only a few thousand. That's all RT will announce, maybe. What are they doing? Same thing here, mocking. Numbers won't make the difference, even though I want them. Even though we all ought to be up there. Let me tell you this. The enemy, when they begin to mock, it hurts. They laughed at their smallness. Here's Nehemiah and his small group of believers. It kind of looks a little bit like Jesus and his disciples. Didn't, didn't look very imposing. They questioned their motives. They lied about him. Said, you're trying to go against the king. That's called, that's called uh, lying. He wasn't going against the king. He's trying to, these enemies are trying to scare them by threatening them. You can't hand out tracts on the job. You can't witness on the job. You'll get fired. That is a lie. On your lunch break, and when everybody else is sitting there talking about sports and Ireland versus uh, France and Wales against uh, England and all this stuff, you can talk about the Lord. Amen. Don't you let the devil shut you down from being a light at work. You know, they began their mockery. Thankfully, it was not going to work this day. You know what opposition and persecution ought to do? It ought to unify us. It ought to organize. It ought to excite us and go, we must be doing something right. Amen? Now there's the courage here. Look at verse 20. Then answered I them, and said unto them, the God of heaven, He will prosper us. Therefore, we, His servants, will arise and build, but ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. So He got up, and this is our memory verse for the whole year. The God of heaven, He will prosper us. Therefore, we, His servants, will arise and build. You know, where, where did these small group of people get so much courage? Proverbs 28, verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You know, he puts his trust in three things. He puts it in the God of heaven himself. You know, you need to find God, you need to find your courage in the God of heaven. Uh, go to jo Jer Joshua. Let's go look at a few scriptures here before we finish. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9. Joshua 1 9. <clears throat> Joshua's getting ready to do another impossible task. Anybody I see in the Bible asked by God to do something, it's always impossible. <laughs> Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9. You know whose shoes Joshua has to fill? Moses's. You know the people that Joshua has to lead? Rebellious Israel. These were not the most spiritual of people that Joshua was being asked to lead. So here's what God says to Joshua, verse 9. Joshua 1, verse 9. Have, I not have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. 
What's his, what's his encouragement? What gives Joshua courage? The Lord God. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel to the right. 1 Samuel chapter 30. In verse 6. First Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6. Now David's come home and he's found out his family and the families of 600 other men have all been taken away captives. Their houses have been burned to the ground. They've been robbed and kidnapped and they've been defeated. And look what it says. And David was greatly distressed. He didn't know what to do. <laughs> For his own people, his own Men spake of stoning him, because they blamed him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David, look what it says, encouraged himself in the Lord his God. I like that. Where's your confidence come from? If it comes from your wallet, you'll be greatly disappointed. First Chronicles chapter 21. To the right some more. First Chronicles chapter 28, I'm sorry. First Chronicles 28. First Chronicles 28 and verse 20. David's trying to speak to his son. Again, here's a man, a young man, who's going to have to fill the shoes of a great man, David. Solomon, I, I, I don't know how to lead. Daddy, I'm 18 years old. How am I supposed to be king? Daddy, you can't die yet. Daddy, you got to keep going. Daddy, I don't know how to do all this stuff. How am I going to be king? Listen to David's words to his own son in chapter 28, verse 20. And David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and of good courage and just do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. What is each one of those reminded of? The Lord God of heaven. See, that's where our courage comes from. Our courage comes from the fact that He's with us. I, 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 I don't bring God into my back pocket and just say, you know, I got God in my back pocket. What I did was I made a decision to line myself with Him and with His Word and with His will knowing that He now is with me. As long as I'm in the middle of His will, as long as I'm doing what He wants me to do, if God be for us, what's our verse say? Who can be against us? So their courage comes from the God of heaven. Do you know Him? You know, David says, my God, He'll be your God. I hope you have a personal relationship with the God that Nehemiah got. Also, and I, and I thought of this, um, it's just nice. And he says, the hand of God upon me. You know, when you're really sad and you're really low, it's nice when somebody comes along and they, they put their hand and they say, I love you. I'm with you. Whatever you need, let me know. You know, it's just something. And this is what Nehemiah says, the hand of my God is upon me. He's encouraging me. I just thought of that. I thought, that's, that's really encouragement when God makes his presence known in your life and just says, I'm here. That's cool. So, it's also in their resolve. Back there in Nehemiah 2.20, we get back there real quick. Should have said, hold your place there. Nehemiah 2.20. 
Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. The God of heaven, He will prosper us. There we, therefore, we, His servants, will arise and build. You know what they're deciding? Well, what they're doing is they're making a decision. And somebody once said this, any battle, any military victory is won on the back of morale, not by the weapons they use. It's nice to have a good weapon, but it's better to have a determination that we've got to win. And if there's anything about a sports team, the coach has got to encourage their, their team to decide we're going to win. That's called resolve. You know, when you ever step out and you decide, you know what, I'm going to hand out this track. I'm going to give that, I'll give that person the gospel today. Don't go, and I know that they'll laugh at me. Don't decide, oh, I know, I'll be fired. No, 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 decide, I'm going to give them the whole package. I'm going to resolve to, to pray for and witness to and tell them about my testimony, about me getting saved and how they need to get saved. I'm going to keep at it till they get saved. That's resolve. But you know, the devil can't defeat that. Don't hesitate. They, their courage came when they made a decision, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. There are too many people, I'm afraid, in church who I'm glad you came. I'm glad you're here in church, but that's all you'll ever do. And your life will always be miserable and an empty book. But if you want courage, take that first step and you go, oh, this isn't so bad. Wow, I, I, when I handed that gospel track out to that person, they didn't eat me up. <laughs> They didn't cut my head off. They, they actually took the track. They actually said they might come out to church. You will find such joy just by taking that step. Just decide to do it. And let me say this. If you ever decide that you're going to do something in your home, or in your heart, about rebuilding, your resolve will give you courage. Because God's with you. But then when you get in motion, it's like, it's like that roller coaster. You ever see those roller coasters? They're the most terrifying objects this uh, in, in, on earth. They put you, they deceive you for the first 10 minutes of the ride. You're sitting in there and it goes one mile an hour up to the top of some pinnacle somewhere eight miles high. And then they release you. <laughs> but you know, the, 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 the thrill of that and, and the fear of that thing is when you got in. Remember that? And for those 10 minutes, I'm like sweating bullets. And I'm like, I want out, I want out. But you know, there is, there is something about doing something for God when you just say, you know, I'm going to tackle this problem. And you get in and you start going. Secretly, you're inside going, yes, 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 yes. There is all. And then in their uniqueness. Let me finish with this thought. He says down at their end, he says, We, God's servants, are going to rise and build, but ye, their enemies, have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. And just in brief, let me say this. God folks speaks to, the, to God's people and says, You're different. You don't need their help. You don't need their wisdom. You don't need their cooperation. You don't even need their permission. You just need to do what I ask you to do. We worry about people's rights. We worry, do they have the right? And let me tell you this. He says right there, he says to those enemies, you have no right to be in our city. We're building these walls to keep you out. If there's one thing, if there's one thing I want you to walk away 
from this year, it'll be, I need some walls. Because the devil comes into my home, the devil comes into my mind, the devil comes into my job, the devil comes into my relationships, and he always just trashes me. I need to build some walls to keep him out. And Nehemiah says, we're going to put you guys out. You have no right to be here. Amen. And if you'll ever walk into your house, you say, devil, you've walked into this house one day too many. No more. Amen. I'm unique. I belong to him. I don't belong to the devil anymore. He used to be my father, but I got adopted. Amen. I changed families. I switched sides. And now the devil wants to come back into my life. Not on your life. Amen. I belong to God. And you do too if you're born again. You're unique. The devil has no right over your life. Don't give him the keys to the back door. Don't give him access to your past. Don't give him access to what your eyes look at. Don't give him access to your phone or to your internet. Don't give him access to your mouth. Amen. You belong to God. He needs to be able to tell you what to say and what not to say. He needs to be able to say, don't look at that and don't go there. Amen. Their uniqueness. The, the world doesn't want limits, do they? They don't want anybody to tell them what to do or not to do. I do. I know what I'm capable of. And I want to put up some walls to keep them out, to keep the enemy, the devil, and the demons out. Let me give you some reflections and then a few questions and we're done. Number one, what brought you to this place today? Was it pressure? Something inside just said, I need to be in church today. Amen. Thank God. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe say, Lord, I need help. That's why we have church all the time, because people need help all the time. Amen? Maybe it's purpose. Lord, I came to church today, and I didn't realize how much rubble I'm in, but I know I'm in it. And my purpose is not to live that way anymore. And, and, and look, I'm not going to give you all the answer in one hour. Are you kidding? This, is, this entire book is about rebuilding stuff. And if you stay with me, you'll see so many truths that you start applying to yourself, you'll be lit up like a Christmas tree. What brought you to this place this morning? Take a good look at the problems that you need to fix. You know what you're worried about fixing? Oh, my phone broke. You won't, you won't have a life until you get that stupid thing fixed. Amen. I can't live without it. You know, that's not what you need to fix, the most important thing. Take a good look at the projects you need to fix like your way of thinking. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says, Casting down imaginations, things that get along inside of there that I never have pulled down. I need to start pulling down. I need to fix my way of thinking. Take a, uh, take a good long look at your anger, at your home, at your own spiritual life. If I asked you, what does your spiritual life look like? You'd have to say, like I'm living in ruin. I don't enjoy my Bible. I don't enjoy church. I never go soul winning. I never hand out a gospel tract. That needs to be fixed. Would you agree? Amen. How about your testimony? How many times have you blown your testimony at work that everybody gave up saying they're not saved, they're not a Christian? You go, you know what? You can rebuild your testimony so that you can be the brightest light at that job. Amen. Or in that school. You say, I've already lost it. I just talk like them. I look like them. I, I live like them. Let me tell you, you're not called to be like that. I don't care if you're 15 years old or 50 or 90. Right? 
You're talking about being old a little while ago, and now I'm really rubbing it in. I don't care how old or how young you are, you need to rebuild your testimony because God put you in that school, God put you on that job, God put you in that, in that business for you to be a light. Amen. Rebuild that testimony. You say, well, nobody, everybody will believe it because they'll see a change that only God could do. Take a good long look at the projects you need to fix. What about your debt? I know some people who invested in Bitcoin recently. They lost a lot of money. Now, I'm kind of laughing because I was like, stupid, 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 stupid. Take a look at it and go, Lord, I want to I get to where I never am in debt again. Amen. How about addiction? I'm not looking at some addiction in your life saying, Lord, I'm so tired of living this way and I really hate it. Amen. How about your children? Do they have a walk with God? Don't talk to anybody else until you have a burden to do something about it. Because that leads me to some thoughts here. Um, this is where the message is, folks. The call to rebuild is to us. The world's not going to rebuild anything. The world tears things down. Every law that we have on the books that protects life is being taken away. Every good law, not everything's perfect in the government, not everything is right, but anything that's good and wholesome and protective is being destroyed. Don't expect them to rebuild. God's people have to do some rebuilding. It's to all of God's people. Not just to the spiritual people, but to the broken people. It's for you to open your eyes and to look and say, you know what, I, I know how I'm living and I don't like it anymore. I hate to argue, and I hate the, the fight, and I hate, I hate the way I think, the way I, I, I am. Will you hate the rubble? I, I, I want to live more and out of the rubbish than I'm, than I'm in. I'm going to rise above it. It's going to be a good work. But you'll be building again. Now that brings me to these questions. What's going to be your response? Six little words. They said, let us rise up and build. We need to express those words ourselves. You have to look at your husband and say under your breath, don't say, I'm going to rebuild you, buddy. Not going to work. He's going to run to the furthest. You know what you need to decide? I'm going to start to rebuild my relationship, my time, my way of thinking, my heart. Go rebuild things. By the way, I have to say this. Someone has to take the lead. You ever heard this? Somebody has to say they're sorry first. You ever, you ever found that out? The hardest thing you ever have to do. Why didn't she say she's sorry? <laughs> somebody's got to take the lead. And Nehemiah was that example. He says somebody's got to do something. And you're, if you're tired of looking at your life and going, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be a victor. I'm supposed to be... Uh, a conqueror, and yet I'm defeated. Instead of waiting on my wife, instead of waiting on my parents, um, instead of waiting on my pastor, I'm going to do something. I'll take the lead. Somebody's got to take the lead in here. Anyone willing to rebuild and restore your home, your life, one brick at a time, one step at a time, according to the Bible? You know what I found out? God will always make a way if you're willing to walk it. Amen. You know, when God split the Red Sea, you know what he expected the Israelites to do? Go through it. 
And when God makes a way, He expects you to walk it. He made a way, folks. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. By the way, there's something that no one can fix. No doctor, no psychologist, no pastor. Only Jesus can fix. And that's, that's your heart. That's your brokenness deep inside that's been hurt by everybody. You know what? He made it. He can fix it. He can fix your sin record. You know, nobody can go back and, and erase all of your sins, but somebody can pay for them all. Somebody can make them all okay. You need to ask Jesus to apply that forgiveness that he offered on the cross 2,000 years ago and ask him to apply it to your shameful life, to your sinful heart, and be born again today. Are you saved? Are you born again? If you are, say, praise God. If you're not, let me ask you this. Why don't you ask him today to save you? I can't give it to you. I can only encourage you. He's ready and willing. He says, come unto me. All ye the labor and the heavy laden, burned out, broken, and I'll give you rest. Father, Nehemiah chapter 2 is a big step. It's an exciting step. It's a baby step. They're just, they're just starting. They're just getting excited. But it was the best step. They, they couldn't get into the work unless everybody was on board. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I did in this room said, Lord, I want to be a builder. I want to rebuild some things. If we were honest, we'd say we've even helped the devil tear things down in our homes. We've participated in, in the, the problems. We've helped the devil destroy some things. So this message is for us. Instead of getting used to living as failures and as disasters, amidst the rubble of, of life today, the families are falling apart. The ability of, of, of people to be Christian, Christ-like, almost non-existent. We're barely surviving, Lord. Could we be allowed to rebuild our homes and our community, our nation? Is it possible that if we had this burden, our nation would be turned to God? Is it possible? I believe it is. I pray, God, this morning we would take it upon ourselves to say, Lord, I'm not much, but I'm going to build. I am going to, I, I, I'm going to commit myself to building something that lasts for my children's children. I want to do it your way. Don't ever let me, don't ever let me live a defeated life anymore. Because by God's grace, I want to follow Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.